Uh, well, good morning. It's good to see you guys. It's an honor to be with you here this morning. I'm Tim Rogers, lead pastor here at Grace Point Church. And for those uh, joining in online, uh, great to see you virtually at least, and I hope you're able to connect with our online hosts there as well. But thanks so much for giving your time this morning to be here, guys. It's an honor to be with you. Well, if you can imagine about 20 years ago in my life, a, um, a younger version of myself and, and Jen, my wife, we knew that we were moving and planning to go to Texas. Um, this was, if you can imagine as well, someone who had not yet come to terms with hair loss in my life, and so I had a little bit more hair, but enough that everybody but me really knew that it was heading south, right? And so we decided we're gonna pack up. At that point, we had fewer things than we have now. We also had fewer children we had, than we have now, we had none. And um, so we loaded up all of our belongings into a 15-foot Penske truck, like a U-Haul, but Penske, right? So yellow, uh, yellow hornet going down the road. And you can imagine, a young couple, newly married. I mean, we've been married about a year, and we're excited to go down for our next version of life, next chapter of life for us. And so all of our stuff gets loaded up, and we finally, uh, early in the morning, are getting ready for a long, it's a 1,500-mile trip down to Texas in a moving truck. Um, so that's a lot of fun. And, but there's anticipation, and so we're excited. I'm driving the Penske truck, and I think Jen, or I don't know who was behind, we had a couple people in the caravan. And I couldn't wait to get going. And so we are leaving the Gap area, and we head down Route 30, which for those who may not be familiar with the area, it's a little more of a commercial area. And then we get down through the lights, uh, through Rockvale Square and Tanger Outlets area, and it's stop and go traffic. And it's kind of like I can feel the growing anticipation of like, I can't wait to get on the highway to go, right? And we finally get through Route 30, and then we get on to 283, heading toward Harrisburg to get the turnpike down. And, um, and finally, the speed limit increases, and I'm like, finally, now we're, now we're going to go. And I put the accelerator down, and I'm rolling at 60, because there's a governor on the Penske truck. And I didn't really know that at that point in my life, because I had never rented a truck like that before. And all of a sudden, I had come to a stark realization that all the way to Texas, <laughs> for two days, even if the speed limit says 65 or 70, which it ended up saying, I'm going 60 the whole way down. And that just the way it was. And so sure enough, as I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. And then these people are passing me, right, passed by minivans, right? Passed by people with learner's permit thing on the back. You know, you're like, this is, this is awesome. And I have learned since then about governors on trucks. I've also learned that governors are true and exist in every sphere of our life. In fact, they exist most commonly, I would say, in relationships. Governors exist in the relationship that you have with me and that I have with you. Governors exist uh, in parent-child relationships. Remember th these times, if you've ever had young kids? Mom and dad, you have a governor on how long you're comfortable with silence when you have small children around. Right? Once it passes that period of time, whatever it is, all of a sudden you realize someone must be in the toilet or having their hair cut or hanging off of a tree branch somewhere like it's gone too long and now I've passed that, right? Moms, you have a governor on how long you're willing to hear mom, 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 mom. At some point you're like, what? I've had enough. But governors exist in all kinds of things relationships especially. And here's what I've learned is I've reflected on kind of governors and my relationships that I have. I've come up with my own three little observations about how governors kind of govern the relationships that I have and see if you can relate to any of these. These are just reflections of my life and governors for me. First of all is this, that, that I actually have a higher governor for those who are more like me. 
So if you are more like me by default, I have a higher grace or love quotient for you. Like you don't start to annoy me as quickly as other people do. Like I have a higher governor for that, right? That just by default, I tend to have a higher governor for people who tend to relate to and share ideas with and backgrounds for me. That's just the way it is. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying that's kind of how I tend to lead into things. I've also learned this about governors for me that I can think that my governor is more generous than it actually is. Like, especially when I look at someone else, I'm like, what's wrong with them? Why aren't they being patient with their family member? As if I'm in the family and understand the weight and pressure that they have, right? That I can think, oh, I am, I'm, a, I'm definitely a patient person, because I, I don't yell very much. Whereas someone around me is like, listen, you, you don't yell, but man, you can get critical. You can get sarcastic quickly. I mean, you don't yell, but you're not as patient as you think you are. But I can tend to think in my own head that my governor is actually way more generous than in truth and in practicality it actually is. And then I've also learned this about myself with governors, and just, I'll put it this way, that when I, when I pass my governor, I can get a critical spirit that turns love into a begrudging counterfeit. Here's what I mean by that. That when, when, when I go past grace, when I, when, let me give it this example. If a child, for example, forgets a lunch at school, this is completely hypothetical. After they've been reminded to take their lunch to school, and then I have to drive said lunch to school for a child, this is, again, this is an imaginary world. What looks like a loving act on the outside, like, that was nice of you to go do that. Actually, underneath, like, I am begrudging the fact that I have to do something for somebody that they should have done on their own. And so, as I pass my governor, what comes in and clicks into my heart is a critical spirit that actually, from the outside, people might, oh, that was so nice of you to bring lunch to you. I'm like, yeah, it was, wasn't it? Inside, like, nope, critical, angry, upset. But outside, it looks like, sure, I'm being extremely loving. And so when I pass my governor, I can get that critical spirit that can turn love into a begrudging counterfeit. And I don't know if you can relate to any of those, but that are, those are some reflections on my life as it comes to relationships and governors. And here's what, as we get into where we're going to go this morning in, in what an early follower of Jesus had to say, John, he, he's, he puts it this way, and here's my summary of what I think his main point is. Let's put it this way, that my love for you should actually be governed by Christ's love for me that my love for you should be governed not by all the things that by default is governed for me by, but by Christ's love for me. I'm going to put it another way to make it maybe even more simple, and I'm going to say this, that, hold on, ready for it? Here we go. That I can't love you more than I believe that Christ loved me. Those words are important to me, and I want to go into them here this morning. That I can't actually love you more than I believe that Christ loved me. I think John writes very particularly about this idea of belief and our apprehension, our understanding, our awareness of what in the world Christ actually did for me and what he actually did for you. And to the degree that I believe and apprehend that is the degree to which I can actually extend love to my neighbor, to you and maybe you to me. So instead of just thinking that I am right about this, I'd like to engage you with what John had to say. So I want to invite you to turn into your Bible to 1 John chapter 3 is where we're going to be. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the pew near you or on your version app on your phone or any other Bible app on your tablet or whatever. Feel free to jump over to 1 John. It's in the right two-thirds of your Bible. If you don't own a Bible, that Bible in the pew is our gift to you, by the way. 
First John chapter 3, beginning at verse 11, is where we are in this series called When Love Works. And John is writing, again, to an early church trying to figure out what, uh, how early Christianity is going to get its footing. And here's what he says in verse 11. For this is a message that you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death, and anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. Now let's look at this a little by little, okay? Look back with me at verse 11. This is the message he writes that you have heard from the beginning. Love one another. Well, I would wonder if I were to ask you to raise your hands, how many of you have never heard before that Christians are supposed to love one another? And I don't know that there'd be a single hand in the room or online that would be raised. This is a basic message that we have all heard. Even if you aren't a Christian or exploring matters of faith, the concept of loving one another, you would know, is a principle of people of faith shared by many people of a variety of faiths as well. But here's what John writes. He said, you've heard this from the beginning, to which I would say, actually, John, we haven't. <laughs> Technically, he goes into Cain and Abel's story, right? But in the Cain and Abel account in Genesis, we're not told there that the first command is to love your neighbor as yourself, or to love the Lord your God and then love your neighbor. That's not actually in the Genesis account. So if I've heard this from the beginning, I have to ask, what do you mean by that? If you're going to take me to the creation account and tell me about Cain and Abel and say somewhere in the beginning there was a command to love one another, I would say, where is that command in Genesis 1 or Genesis 2 or Genesis 3 or Genesis... Like, it doesn't show up in the story of Cain and Abel. So what do you mean? And the only thing that I can appreciate and understand from what John is saying is the implication. The human awareness that we are made in an image of God, and it should be understood that humans were put on the planet not to murder each other, not to hate each other, but to love each other, which is why Cain's sin against Abel was so egregious, so terrible, and so hateful, because it went against the order of things, the nature of things that everyone should know is from the beginning. Even though it was never stated at the beginning, it should be understood that way. And he goes on. So here's what he says. Don't be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Verse 13. And don't be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. And anyone who does not love remains in death. And so he introduces this idea of, of Cain and Abel, and evil and good, and introduces that, yes, all of us, all of us can find ourselves in moments where when we pass the governor, so to speak, I can begin to act like Cain. I can begin to hate my brother, even though I was made in the image of God to love him. And that inside all of us are these tendencies and struggles deep within us or not so deep within us really to wrestle with what is an essential human function and command to love each other. What a hard wrestle and struggle we have on a practical level over and over in every relationship. There's constant wrestle with this. And so you have to ask the question, what actually does it look like then to love? If I'm going to try to understand love, what does it actually look like? How do we know what love is? 
To which John would say, I am so glad you asked that question. Verse 16, this is how, he says, we know what love is. And I said, he answered my question, don't you think? And he said it this way. Next few verses we're going to read. He says, Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. So much in here that I want to unpack. I want to look at the beginning sentence with you again. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Many of you have heard this before, but I want to come at it from a slightly different angle. I want you to imagine for a minute if you are going on a vacation with a friend to the cabin somewhere, and there's a beautiful lake, and maybe not unlike this situation, there's a pier that leads out to a beautiful lake view with mountains in the background. And one, late into the evening, maybe to watch the sunset, you decide to go out and sit at the end of that pier and ponder. Just sit. Just be quiet for a minute. Your phone is not even around. For some, that's anxiety. For others, that's bliss. You are sitting there and just taking in the beauty of the moment. All of a sudden, your friend comes running down the pier, and out of a, a, a sign of deep affection and love for you, launches themselves into the deep end of the lake and says, this is for you, and drowns to show their love for you. you th what kind of a moron would do that, number one? Number two, what kind of tragedy would that be? Number three, like what in the world is even happening? That is ridiculous. To watch someone lose their life simply because they said, I love you so much, I'm willing to lose my life for you, and jump in the pond, what are you doing? I didn't need you to do that to demonstrate your love for me. Now, consider the same situation. <clears throat> However, instead of just sitting at the end of the pier late in the evening, you decide to take a swim into the pond. You end up gasping for air, and your friend, seeing your plight, <clears throat> decides to jump into the pond and saves you. And in the process of saving you, they lose their life. Now, how do you feel about your friend? See, the death is the same. The issue is, am I a spectator in the sacrifice of somebody else, or am I a beneficiary of the sacrifice of somebody else? Because if I'm a spectator of someone else's sacrifice, that isn't going to hit me nearly the same way as realizing, man, I am a beneficiary of the death of somebody else. And so when John writes, Jesus Christ died, and he uses a little three-letter word, for us, for us, that preposition means you and me were drowning we weren't safely on the pier enjoying God's creation. We were drowning, and Christ jumped in and saved us, and I'm a beneficiary of that. I am not just a spectator and observer that Christ died. And here's the problem with that, especially if we grew up in the church, that we tend to think that the pond is full of immorality, that people who are drowning are all the immoral people, the people who are rebellious, 
Like the younger brother in the prodigal son story, the people who get their dad's inheritance early, waste all their money, and sleep with whoever they want to, and have no vision for their future, and are lazy, and live for today, hedonistic, humanistic, whatever istic you want to call it. And thankfully, we're sitting at the edge of the pier, safe in our morality. But what we have to understand is the deep end of this lake is not just about immorality, it's also about morality. That in the deep end of this lake are people who are trying to be moral and save themselves. Are people who like you and maybe like me, I will be honest with you, when I sin, and I don't know if you can relate to this, when I sin, I'm going to be honest, I don't want the gospel. I want to work my way out you ever feel that instinct immediately? Like, shoot, I did that again. I thought about that again. I said that again. I didn't do enough. And what do you want to do? As a pastor, I get people coming to me all the time with guilt and shame. And almost without fail, everybody is like, what can I do? How can I morally get my way out of the deep end that I am in. I need something to do to save myself. I feel guilty, therefore I want to work out of the problem. I'm in trouble, I'm taking on water, and I need to get out. How can I get out? <laughs> to which John says, hold on for a minute. Jesus died for the immoral and for the moral. For all of us who wrestle with morality, wrestle with obedience, who want so badly to obey God that we put obedience as our self-salvation project, that we try functionally to save ourselves. And so when John says, this is how we know what love is, Christ died for us, I don't believe we can actually apprehend that until we come to a deep conviction that when you're sitting at the edge of the pier, or when that you're not just sitting at the edge of the pier watching your friend drown, you were in the water, and Christ saved you. From that space comes a deep conviction, and he goes on to what that conviction is. He goes on, look at the next sentence. He says, and we ought, we ought, he says, to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. That is a legal term. It means this is like the obligation of the contract, basically. This is what legally should come next. That we are obligated, in light of what we have been safe from, we are drowning in both our immorality and drowning in our morality. Christ came, jumped in, saved us. He died for us. I'm a beneficiary, not just a spectator. And therefore, I have a legal obligation to lay my life down for you. And for me, and verse 17, he makes it intensely practical. If anybody has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? He says, if you don't have compassion, if you don't look and see and say, boy, these people, they could use some support, not out of enabling, but out of empowering. This is what Christ has done for me. This is a, a natural outflow. Because if we look around and see the neighbor around us and say, yeah, I see that need. I hope someone fixes that. Then the question becomes, is the love of God in us? It goes back to Cain and Abel. Which one are we functioning like? Is the love of God in us if I see your need and don't do something about it? Now, I'm going to press on this a little bit because in, when John was writing this to the early church, the internet didn't exist yet, right? 
Cable news television didn't exist. Here's what I mean, that the, the scope of human need was much smaller in terms of my worldview. Right now, you can get online, I mean, even this moment, maybe some of you are, are surfing the web right now, I don't know, but you can see the scope of human need is massive. The ability to understand need across our entire globe is ridiculous. And so if you apply this verse in a global sense, we lose its power. Because we can see needs in almost every country that exists. Are you supposed to, is, is what this verse saying, hey, the next time a, a commercial comes on to sponsor a child, make sure you sponsor a child. And the next time it comes on, do the same thing. Yep, do it, well, I mean, one more time, if you don't mind, one more time. How can the love of God be in you if you don't sponsor every child every time there's a commercial that rolls? And then you start turning off the TV, right? What, what does this actually mean? What is this saying? It can't mean that. It's just not functionally possible. I love the way Andy Stanley said it. He said, do for one what you wish you could do for all. Do for one what you wish you could do for all. Great principle, well stated. Do for one what you wish you could do for all. This principle is very simple but very true and I think very appropriate for what John is saying. Who is the one right around you? Who is your neighbor? Who is your peer? Who is your coworker? Who is the person that, that is in your sphere of influence? You say, man, they, they could use a little bit of something. They could just use a little support. They could use a little help. They could use just a little love from a friend. Do for one what you wish you could do for all. And he goes on, verse 18. Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. That this love that we have for one another doesn't exist just in our head, but it exists in practice, which is my problem, which I identified earlier in my governor, that I tend to think I am more generous than I actually am. But he says, don't confuse yourself. Don't believe that. Let me push it in and say we need to love with actions and in truth. Now, it becomes difficult to, becomes difficult to embrace this if you're someone who really wants to do the right thing. Here's what I mean. If you have a desire to love and care for the least around us, there's always going to be the least around us, right? There's always going to be people who are in need. And sometimes you wonder, am I doing enough? Am I caring enough? And then sometimes you think, well, I'm glad I married my spouse so they can care more than I do because, man, they're more caring than I am. <laughs> but really, how do you know when you're doing enough? And John addresses that in the next section, verse 19. He puts it this way. Like, this is how we know that we belong to the truth. I'm going to try to keep this section together. It can get a little confusing to read. But he's saying this is how we know that we belong to the truth meaning that we're functioning in the way that we should be, and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. Do you want that? <laughs> Do you want to, in God's presence, have the heart be at rest? I appreciate, um, you know, the way we were led this morning in, in worship that, as Rachel was talking about, this idea of rest. How can we set our hearts at rest here in his presence? What does that mean? Because sometimes you may have, and I have the experience of verse 20. If our hearts condemn us, meaning that our mind plays over and over all the things we're doing wrong, our mind reminds us and our heart reminds us, you, you fail here, you fail here, you're not doing enough here, you're not caring enough there. If our heart condemns us, he says, take, take courage. We know that God is greater than our hearts or our doubts or our fears, that God, his truth resides above our fear and our doubt, and he knows everything. So in other words, my peace with God isn't dependent upon the feelings of confidence that I have necessarily when I come before him. The fact that Christ did die on the cross, the truth exists. So put your heart at rest a little bit. Know that God's love for me is independent of my feeling of condemnation of myself. 
verse 21, but he says, sometimes, dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, meaning we come to God and feel good in the moment, we feel like God is close to us and we're, we're tracking as much as we know how to track, then in that moment, we have confidence before him to, and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him? Well, that raises an interesting question. What are the commands of God? Verse 23, he puts it this way. This is his command. This is so important. His command is to believe. His command isn't to do. His command isn't action. His command isn't to follow the Ten Commandments even here. His command is to believe. To believe. This is the command. To believe. I want you to keep coming back to the fact that, that Christ, if you will, jumped into the deep end of that pond and saved you. This is what you're to do. I want you to believe. I want you to believe. But what am I supposed to do? I want you to believe. But what am I supposed to do? I want you to believe that Jesus has done this. And then, consequently, he goes on, and to love one another as he commanded us. When you believe in what Christ has done, not just as a spectator, but as a beneficiary, then I ought to love you in a way that plays out that love that I understand happened to me. And then he goes on, verse 24, the one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. Well, then how in the world do I know that I'm living in him? John continues, this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit that he gave us. Now, this gets a little confusing. He starts talking about the Holy Spirit, but not just about the Holy Spirit, about other spirits. Let's look at that. So he's saying, we know that we're in God by the Spirit he gave us, verse 1 of chapter 4. He says, dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, plural, to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit, meaning there are multiple spirits now that he's talking about, every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not is not from God. Here's what he's saying. Spirit and spirits. Let's not get confused. The spirit, small s, what he's talking about is the, the message of the individual. We use this language all the time like, oh, she's got a a friendly spirit or a good demeanor. She's, uh, he's, he's got a good spirit about him. This is essentially that lowercase s that John is writing about, that the, the message of a prophet is kind of the spirit of that prophet is used in the biblical language. So meaning this, that there are multiple spirits that we all wrestle with. I'm not even talking in a heavenly realm. I'm meaning this. I use a term and I used it earlier. I sometimes get a critical spirit. I sometimes get a judgmental spirit. I sometimes get an impatient spirit. I sometimes get a who cares spirit about me. These messages of my soul, if you will, that move me away from seeing that Christ came to die for me, that he jumped into the pond for me, are the spirits, small s, that John is talking about. Saying the things that draw you away from loving your neighbor, he said, test those things. When you are engaging on social media, when you're talking to one another, when you're with your friends and they say, well, I, she's such a blah, 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 because she believes this. And he's such a blah, 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 because he believes this. And now I can see why you don't want to spend time with them anymore. Test the spirit, John says. Test the spirit of that conversation. Test the spirit of your family dynamic. Test the spirit that is leading you in that direction. Because the spirit, he said, of the Antichrist is the spirit that takes me away from the anchor of my love for you and your love for me, which isn't my obedience or my goodness, but is that Jesus 
died for me, that I'm a beneficiary of that deep love of Christ. And so any spirit in our conversations that doesn't drive me back to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross and the ensuing love that I'm supposed to have for you is not a spirit of God, is what he's saying. And so young church, he writes, test the spirit among you that your speech, that your conversation, that your relationships would be governed by the love that Christ has for you, not as a spectator, but you, young church. Don't forget, you're a beneficiary. He jumped in the pond to save you. You were drowning. You're drowning either in your immorality or you are drowning in your morality. But either way, you were drowning, and Christ saved you, and we ought than to love one another. Which takes me to this landing of the plane this way. Let me come back to this. I can't love you more than I believe Christ loved me. I simply can't do it. And so when I realize that I'm being critical of you, that I'm being judgmental of you, that I'm being too quick to cut your motivations or judge your motivations, it has to point back to, whoa, whoa, where is my love for you anchored? And if it's anchored to morality that I wish you were as ethical as I am, then it makes total sense that I'd be critical of your immorality. But if my love for you is anchored to Christ's death for me, then I have to test that spirit. I can't love you more than I believe Christ loved me. Three questions to wrap it up. Number one is this. Which story do I rehearse? We talked about this last week a little bit. Which story, think about the pier, do I rehearse? Are you the person sitting there on the pier whose friend has jumped in to say, hey, that was neat. It was kind of neat from this perspective that Christ died on the cross for everybody. That's kind of neat. Or do I rehearse the story that says, shoot, man, I, I was drowning. I was drowning. I was drowning in my morality. I was drowning in my obedience. I was drowning in my immorality. And Christ saved me. Which story do you rehearse? Second question is this. What can I do for one? Not what can I do for all, but what can I do for one? What one is sitting right in front of you, in your family, in your neighborhood, in your place of employment? What one person is sitting right in front of you who ought to receive from you the kind of tangible love that's in action, not just in speech, that Christians should offer, sometimes and often in a material way? Third question is simply this. What spirit is in me? Is it the spirit of, of God that moves me back to Christ's sacrifice on a routine basis? That when I pass my governor on you and you pass your governor on me, instead of getting a critical spirit, a judgmental spirit, an angry spirit, an impatient one, that the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God, drives me back to the conversation about, whoa, whoa, what governs my relationships with you and you with me? What spirit is in you? Thank you for listening this morning. I very much appreciate it. I'm looking forward to next Sunday, Easter Sunday morning. You know there are going to be some changes to our timing. I think Greg's going to talk about that a little bit later on. But I look forward to having you back as we continue in this series, When Love Works, the Easter version, next Sunday. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to be here this morning to pause on some of these questions to engage the issue of our love and the basis of our love for one another. Father, I pray that you would help us in such a world as we are in right now uh, that is too easily divided and too easily provoked 
where an ability to dialogue about challenging things can sometimes seem like a pipe dream. Father, we need love for one another wherever we land on a whole variety of issues that we wrestle with as a society right now. We ought to, we ought to love. Not because we're moral and good enough, but because we see again and we apprehend again, we believe again deeply. Man, I was in that water. Christ jumped in. He saved me, but I was going to die without him. So I pray that you, you would move our spirit, if you will, constantly back to this reminder that this is how we know what love is. Christ died for us. May we serve our families in that regard. May we serve our businesses in that regard, our communities, our friends. So, Father, I pray that you give us the courage to do for one what we wish we could do for all this week. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.